The following audio is from Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to love God, love others, and make disciples. For more information about fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. If you've got a Bible, you can flip over there. If not, there's a Bible in front of you. And if you don't have one, that's our gift to you. Take it home with you uh, and spend some time reading it. It's something we want to give to you. All right, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. All right, we've been studying through the book of Philippians, right? This is uh, week four uh, in this book. We've been talking about how Philippians is the book of joy. Uh, and I think we've all, in, uh, we've all experienced the emptiness of pursuing happiness. I mean, we're honest, we've all experienced that at some point in our life where we have deviated from pursuing the things of God, pursuing the glory of God, and pursued happiness for our own lives, pursued selfishness, and we felt the emptiness of that to where it's like we could never attain fulfillment in this life. But when we read through Philippians, it's all about joy. It's all about something more. The more that we're searching for is Holy Spirit-produced joy. So week one, we talked about the fact that joy is found in true salvation. There is no joy apart from salvation. Joy is the divine product of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the heart of every believer. There is no joy apart from the Holy Spirit. And then week two, we talked about the fact that joy is found in kingdom focus, that our joy can be challenged, but if we elevate our focus above the circumstances of life and focus on living for the kingdom, we can live in the joy of our salvation. That if we want to truly live in this joy that we've been talking about, we've got to elevate our thoughts, elevate our focus above the circumstances of life, focus on living our lives for the glory of God, and in that we find this joy. And then last week, we talked about the outcomes of that kingdom focus. What are the outcomes of truly elevating our mindset? And we said because we understand that our future, is, uh, in, it, our future in heaven is far greater than anything this life can offer, we can live now wholly for Jesus. The outcomes of that kind of focus is kingdom impact, kingdom unity, and kingdom suffering. And so today and over the next few weeks, we're going to see the product of living in the joy of our salvation. What, what does it produce? If we're truly living in this joy we've been talking about, what are the outcomes of that in our life? And so that's the question we're going to be answering. Uh, this week, for many of you parents, you know, was star testing week in the great state of Texas. <laughs> yeah, so that's my wife's thoughts about it as well. Uh, and so star testing was this week, and, and so they did a math star test and I think a reading star test. And, and so obviously there were a lot of conversations in our household about the star test and different subjects in school. And started talking about the differences in uh, math and like English language arts. And I personally prefer math. And here's why. Because I like things to be objective. I think math is easier to grasp because two plus two always equals four. There's no ambiguity in that, right? Two plus two always equals four. We have some people in our culture today that wanna try to like poke at that, that's just stupid. Two plus two always equals four, right? There's no denying that, that's a truth. Uh, math is ruled by formulas and laws. There's no subjectivity to it. Uh, but writing, on the other hand, is subjective, right? If you turn a paper into one teacher, you might make a 90. You turn it into another, you get a 70. How can I live in that world, right? How can I know? When I was in college and wrote papers, 
in high school and most of my classes in college, I always made really good grades on papers and I took this one senior level writing class and it's like every paper I turned in, it was a B, 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 B. And I took that personally. Hurt my feelings a little bit. I'm like, I don't, I've made A's in all these other classes. You're gonna give me a B, why? It's because it's subjective, right? Um, and so you could have one writing teacher that's all about the Oxford comma and one that hates it. Um, I prefer things that are objective. So my mind works that way. It sees things in black and white. So how many of you guys are like that? You're black and white people. All right, how many of you are like gray and everything in between? All right. You, you guys are greatly outnumbered. All right. You guys, y'all are my people. All right. This is good. If you're my people, you're going you're to like this. Um, Paul writes this passage in a way that really gels with this kind of thinking. All right, when we're going to read this, this is a formula. It's, it's if this is true, then this also must be true. All right, there's no, there's no ambigu- ambiguity to it. It's, it's if this is true, this must be true. All right, so let's read together Philippians 2, verse 1. It says this. If then, if this is true, if, if then there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship with the Spirit, any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. All right, so we're going to just walk through this, and we're going to start with the if part of the formula. All right, if then, if the following list of things is true about you, then, right? Uh, So the natural question we would start with is, are these things true about us? As we go through this list and explain what each of these mean, are these things true about us? Are they true about you? Are they true about the Fellowship Church here in Nederland, Texas? Are these things true about us? If so, we'll get to the then later. So what 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 are the things Paul lists? First, he says, uh, if there's any encouragement in Christ. Uh, the word encouragement there uh, can be translated comfort, counsel, exhortation. So what's Paul saying? He's saying if you have a relationship with Jesus, right? That, that is communicating a relationship. Paul's saying if you have a relationship with Jesus, not just a knowledge of Jesus, but an intimacy with Jesus. It's one thing to know about Jesus. It's another thing for him to comfort you, counsel you, exhort you, it's that, it, that gives you the picture of a personal relationship. If Jesus is your comfort, your counsel, your conviction. This is always the most important part, right? Knowing the Lord is imperative to Christian living, right? There, there is no point in Christian living if, if there is no relationship. Apart from relationship, there's no point to all of this. Jeremiah 9, 23 says this. This is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom, The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. Notice he doesn't say, knows of me. You catch that? There's a difference. It says that he understands and knows me. Um... Those of you who, have, or who are married, the longer you're married, hopefully the more you know and understand your spouse, right? The longer I live with Becca, the more I spend time with her, the more, I, you know, more time and energy I invest in understanding her, the more I know her, the more I know what she loves, 
the more I know how to push her buttons. The more I spend time with her, the more intimacy there is. Without a relationship with God, all you have is religion. Without a relationship with God, all you have is religion. And religion without relationship is pointless. You're wasting your time. If you're living in religion without the relationship, you might as well hang it up, go home. You're wasting your time. Jesus called out the Pharisees for this. Matthew 23, 27, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. I'm not one to say that religion is a bad thing. I think we've gotten into a time and place where we want to be like, well, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. Well, that is true, but... Relationship produces religion. Religion just means devotion, right? If you have a relationship with Christ, you're going to be devoted to him. And so religion in and of itself is not bad, but religion without relationship is pointless. It's a waste of time. Religious devotion without first running to Jesus in faith and entering into a personal relationship with him is like whitewashing tombs. You may look like you have it all together on the outside. You may have everyone fooled in your life, but on the inside, you're dead. Knowing Jesus is more important than everything else in this life. Everything else we're about to talk about, knowing Jesus is more important than all of those things. If you don't have this part of the if, then the then doesn't matter. If you don't have this part of the if, you might as well just stop listening now, which some of you may already be there, and, and, and let's not continue on because it's pointless. If this is this true of you, do you have a relationship with Jesus? He goes on. He talks about the love of Christ. It says, if any consolation of love. Our first if, if is if you have a relationship with Christ. Our second if is there any consolation of love. What's he saying? He's saying if you've been comforted, if you found peace by means of the love of God, if you really have a relationship with Christ, this would be true about you. Right? If you truly have a relationship with Christ, then you're going to have experienced the love of God in your life at some point. You're going to have experienced his love, right? Romans 5, 8, but God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has proven his love for us. He's already proven it. So no matter what's going on in your life, you can overcome the temptation to doubt God's love for you because he's already proven it on the cross. There's peace in that. There's comfort in that. So when you lose your job, you don't have to be tempted with the question, does God love me? When you get a a horrible health diagnosis from the doctor, you don't have to be tempted with the question, does God love you? When you sin miserably, you don't have to be tempted with the question, does God love you? Yes, he loves you. He's already proven his love for you. It's definitive. That question's already been answered with a resounding, powerful, eternal yes. Yes, God loves you. He loves you. He gave himself for you. The question is, has that love been something that you've received and surrendered to? Has that love been something that you've received and surrendered to? We're going to elaborate more on that question later. If there's a relationship with Christ, if you've been comforted by the love of God, the next if, he talks about the gift from Christ, if any fellowship with the Spirit. The third if is fellowship with the Spirit. Uh, people ask a lot of times, how can you know if you have the Holy Spirit? We preached a sermon on that not too long ago, but let me just say in short, if something lives inside of you, you know it, right? If you've ever been pregnant or your wife's ever been pregnant, 
it's pretty obvious that something is living inside of her, right? It makes itself known. There's cravings. I can't tell you how many times I had to go to the store for pickles or orange soda. There's cravings. There's, there's this belly bump that starts to pop up, right? Which I have one, but I'm not, there's not a baby in there. Um, taco baby. Um, but there's evidence, right? There's that cool moment where they start to kick, and you can feel that. Or like it gets like really crazy towards the end where it's like alien, and they're like, right? You can see their like handprints in their face, and it's really creepy. But there's evidence, right? When something lives inside of you, there's evidence of that reality. This is true about the Holy Spirit. He makes his presence known, John 14, 26. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. The Holy Spirit teaches you. The evidence that he lives inside of you is that the Holy Spirit teaches you. He pushes you towards intimacy with the Father. We live in a time where people don't really like conviction. Right? People, people don't want to hear things that are hard to hear. They don't want people poking and prodding in their life. I uh, heard a time where this lady was going to a church, and the pastor at that church was uh, always you know, preaching pretty hard. And, uh, and she uh, was saying, you know, I'm going to try the church up the road. Every time I come here, I just feel bad about myself, and I feel guilty, and I don't feel good when I come. So I think I'm going to go down the, down the road. And, they, you know, they're always just talking about how God loves me and there's this uplifting spirit. That's a danger if that's your attitude. The purpose of the Holy Spirit in you is to convict you. Conviction is a good thing. It's the Holy Spirit pushing you towards intimacy with the Father. That's what we should want, right? We should want intimacy with the Father. When we push away from that conviction, we start pursuing our own desires. We're pushing ourselves away from the Father. Conviction is good. We should long for conviction. It's a sign that you're really saved. The Holy Spirit's leading and chastising is a sign that you're really saved. Ephesians 1.13, in him you also were sealed with the promised spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. When we read the word, when we hear it preached, the Holy Spirit will convict us and push us towards intimacy with the Father. Don't run from that. Run towards it. Run towards that. Why? Because that conviction draws us closer to the Father. The Holy Spirit is a taste of what heaven is going to be like. Heaven is awesome because in heaven there's intimacy with God. That's what makes heaven so good. It's not all of the things that we think are going to be great. Like, I mean, when I get to heaven, they're going to have tacos from La Nvidia there because that's heaven, right? That's not what makes heaven awesome. What makes heaven awesome is the fact that God is there. And there's an uninhibited relationship there where you get to be in his presence. And a down payment of that, a taste of that, a little glimpse of that here and now is the Holy Spirit living inside of you, pushing you towards intimacy with the Father by convicting you of your sin. Sin is what separates us from God. If there's no conviction, then we don't run from sin. That's why conviction is so important. So if you have a relationship with God, if we've been comforted by the love of God, if we have the spirit of God, and the last if here is if any affection and mercy. I worked with teenagers for like 15 years, and... Uh, Sometimes it's like pulling teeth to get a teenager to open up to you, 
to have a conversation with you, especially ones who are a little bit shy. You know, you'll ask them a question. They don't like, they're in that awkward stage where they don't look at you in the eye. So you're like trying to talk to them and you're like, nope, right here. My eyes are here. Look at me. And they're like looking all around and awkward. But I always found that if I could figure out what they're passionate about, right? if they're passionate about sports, if I could kind of spark that conversation, let them tell me about the sport that they're in, if they're passionate about music, or if they're passionate about gaming, or if they're passionate about art, or whatever it was, if I could somehow figure out what that thing is that they're passionate about and, and convince them to, that, that I actually care about that and allow them to start opening up to me about that, then they don't shut up. They'll talk forever about what they're passionate about. Why is that? Because we love to talk about our passions. We love to talk about our heart's affections. Just ask any grandparent in the room about their grandkids. They won't shut up about it. They, let me show you on my phone five million pictures of my grandkids, right? Parents, grandparents love their grandkids. They're passionate about it. In our text, affection and mercy are translated here for passion and compassion. Passion is our heart's affections. It's what we live for. Compassion is pointing those affections towards others. Paul's saying, if you're passionate about serving others, this, this was the heart of Christ, right? His, his heart's desire was to serve others. Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. When you look at the life of Christ, there's no denying what he was about. Matthew 18, 11, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost, that's what Jesus came for, to save that which was lost. It says, what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Jesus was and is passionate about saving the lost. Why? Because he was burdened by the lost. Matthew 9, 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion. There it is. He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Jesus felt compassion for the lost, and that compassion leads to passion for saving the lost. The love of God in us leads us to love others, which leads us to be passionate about bringing others to Jesus. And Paul is saying, look, if those things are true about you, then. Right? If all these things are true about us, then. What's the then? Part two, we're in the then. If you have a relationship with Christ, if the love of God is in you, if the spirit of God indwells in your heart and you're burdened for the lost and passionate about reaching them for Christ, then then we should be united for the cause of Christ. If all of those things are true about us as a church, if they're true about you as a follower of Jesus, then we as God's people should be united together. There should be things that drive a wedge in between us. We should be united together. So let's finish up at what areas Paul says we should be united in. First he says, "United or unity of thought. He says, make my joy complete by thinking the same way. Paul isn't saying that we should all be exactly alike. We're not. God created us to be different. We see things from a different perspective, and that's a good thing. Uh, 
Julian and I are very different. We have a different perspective. And we see things even differently sometimes when we're, when we're studying the Word together. We, we have different uh, resolutions that we may come to when we're reading a text. And those things make for really good conversations. I love talking to him because we don't think the same way sometimes, and so he'll see things differently than I do, and that's a challenge to me. We can have those conversations. I enjoy that. While we don't have to think exactly alike, it is important that we see the world through the same lens. You see the difference there? It's one thing for me and Julian to be different and to approach things in a different way. It's another thing for us not to even see the world through the same lens. We see the world through the same lens. So even though we're different, we still have the same perspective on life because we've both been changed by the gospel. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What's Paul saying? He's saying you should be a total different creation. The way that you look at the world should be radically different because your mind has been renewed by, the te- by, the, and the, by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul tells the Romans to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We should see things differently once we come to Christ. When we look at the things of the world, when we look at the complicated, hard topics, we should see those things differently because we have been changed by the Holy Spirit. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. There are all kinds of philosophies that will steer you away from the true gospel. And it seems like it's more and more readily available today than it ever has been because of the internet, right? There are so many empty philosophies of this world, and they're creeping into the church and masking themselves as the gospel. But they are not the gospel. They're the anti-gospel. They're against what God's word teaches us. An example of this is this New Age movement where they don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They, They look at the word of God and think, if this doesn't fit what I think, then let's throw it out with the garbage. They believe that Jesus wasn't the Christ, he was a Christ. And that Christ is an essence that we can all take part in. It's a worship of self. And it has worked its way into the church. Paul's saying, because we have known and received the gospel, we shouldn't be fighting over worldly philosophies. This shouldn't be something that creeps into our, our congregation because we know the gospel. We've been given the true gospel through his word. If we're really saved, we will be united in our thinking. He goes on. He says there's a unity of love, having the same love. I asked a question earlier when we were talking about the love of God. I said, has the love of God been something that you have received and surrendered to? I said we'd elaborate on that later. Well, it's later. How can we know the answer to that question? 1 John 4, 7 says this, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And look at this. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. John tells us that the evidence that we're truly been comforted by God's love, evidence that we've really been saved is found in our love for others. You want to question whether you've truly experienced and known the love of God? It's evidenced by your love for other people. John says, 
You can't have a relationship with Christ and not love others. Those two are antithetical to one another. God is love. If you entered into a relationship with him, you will love others. It's important that we note that love is not, it's not this passing love of our culture. It's like, oh yeah, I, I love that person I don't know, yeah. No, love is, is a decisive, sacrificial love. This is a love that loves despite the response that we receive. Now things get a little more complicated, right? It's one thing for me to say I love you and even maybe have like this like feeling inside of me that, yeah, I do love you. I have, I have empathy. I have, I have this feeling in my gut that when I see you, I'm like, yeah, that dude's awesome. It's a total different thing that when you're rude to me, that I still choose to love you. I still choose to serve you. You see the difference? And that's what we're talking about here. So, example, let me get, kind of paint a picture with you about this. So, Davis, our youngest, obviously loves Becca more than he loves me. He's even blatantly said it, which is very rude and very hurtful. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to stop loving him, right? When he falls and Becca's not there, it doesn't mean I'm not going to pick him up and put a Band-Aid on his bobo and try to comfort him. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to feed him lunch when it's just he and I on Fridays and Becca's not there, although I've been tempted. He's my son, and I love him. It's a decisive choice, even when he's not all that lovable. (laughs) Even when he hurts me, even when he fails, even when he doesn't meet my expectations, I will always choose to love him because it's a decisive choice. That's what love really is. And we get that, right? Because many of us are parents. You get that reality. If you're a parent, you love your kid regardless of how they treat you. That's the picture of what it means to truly love one another within the church. That even when we hurt each other, even when we disappoint one another, we still decisively choose to love in the midst of all of that. We will not always be lovable. We will fail one another. Listen, this morning, I will fail you. I'm a human being. We may hurt one another. We may not meet each other's expectations, but we should all be united in our love for each other. A decisive choice to love in spite of the hurt and failures. This is how Paul can love the guard that he's chained to while he writes this letter. This is how Paul can love the guys that were talking trash on him while he's in prison and and, and glad that he's in prison because it's a chance for him to elevate himself, he can still love them. Why? Because it's a decisive choice, because he's been changed by the gospel. He's a new creation. And that leads us to this unbelievable, somewhat unnatural love for one another, that even when someone hurts us, we still choose to love. Paul's saying if if we're really saved, if all those first things are true about us, then we will choose to love. The next thing he says, that we'll be united in spirit. What is unity in spirit? It means we're all of one accord. We're all passionate about the same thing. I, uh, last Sunday, I was leaving 
and there was this car back here that I didn't recognize, and usually a staff parked back here, and so it was kind of like where Cameron usually parks. Cameron's our student guy, and uh, he drives right now like a Nissan Xterra, and he's been talking about wanting to get a new car because his car now is horrible in gas mileage, and so I look out there, and it's a, it was a, a Hyundai, uh, I think a Sonata, the little, the little four-door car. Anyway, he, I text him, and I was like, did you buy a new car? And he's like, uh, no, my, I parked up front. And I was like, okay. Well, then a little bit later, he texts me back. He's like, I went back there, and I saw the car you were talking about, and one can only dream. <laughs> and I was like, you're such a nerd. If your dream is a mom car, <laughs> you might be the biggest nerd I've ever met. And then he texts back, and he says, you know, we're so alike, but we're also so different. I was like, you're right, because if my dream car is going to be a truck, not some mom car, and, and, and it was this reminder that, that even though we are different, right, Julie and I, again, we're very different, we come from very different backgrounds, Cameron and I are very different in the things that we like, like and, and enjoy, but we work together as a well-oiled machine, as a staff, because we all are passionate about the gospel. We're not passionate about Hyundais or trucks, we're passionate about the gospel, if we're all but because of the gospel, we have everything in common. Acts 2.44, we read this back before COVID. It says, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. If you're passionate about the things of this world, that's impossible to have all things in common. If you're passionate about the things the world has to offer, you're not going to have things in common. Let me look at the world we live in. Everybody hates each other. But if you're passionate about the gospel, if that's what you're living your life for, then regardless of what background we come from, regardless of the things that we enjoy in life, regardless of all those things, regardless of whether we live here in Netherlands, Texas, or in Bolivia, we have all things in common because the gospel is everything. That's why John tells us, 1 John 2.15, do not love the world nor the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also it's lust. But the one who does, not, who does the will of God lives forever. We shouldn't get wrapped up in the things of this world. That should not be our focus. That should not be our heart's affections. It should not be what we're passionate about. We can be united because we're all passionate about the gospel. So even if we come from radically different backgrounds, radically different families, radically different socioeconomic levels, we can still be united in spirit because we're all passionate about the gospel. It's what makes our hearts tick. It's what makes us get excited. It's what makes us live to the next day is this gospel that we've been given and we've been commanded to go and share with others. Our passion for the gospel should supersede our passion for all other things. We recognize that in comparison to the gospel, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. It goes on, it says, intent on one purpose, unity of purpose. So we're united in our thinking, our love, our spirit, and our purpose. 
because we're all passionate about the gospel, we're also united in our purpose. What's our purpose? Matthew, 18, Matthew 28, 18. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's your purpose. Your purpose is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We've all been given the same assignment. My assignment is no different than your assignment. Your assignment is no different than my assignment. We're all commanded to go and make disciples. This is what our lives should be about. We labor together to accomplish this assignment. We should be united in this. Our purpose isn't to increase church attendance. Our purpose isn't to provide enjoyable programs for families. Our purpose isn't to be entertained by good preaching and good music. Our purpose is to go out and proclaim this good news to others and make disciples. That's what we're called to be. That's who you're called to be. And that unites us because we've all been given the same task. Our purpose is to seek and save the lost, to make disciples of all nations. And then finally, we're on the last point. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as far more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. So we're united in our interests. What are we interested in? We're interested in others. We're interested in the interests of others. Try to say that fast three times. This is hard to do, right? Can we just take a moment and acknowledge that this is a hard thing to do? To consider others more than we consider ourselves, that's crazy. Right, that's hard to do. Paul says, don't live for your own ambitions. What do you want for your life? When you're little, you start making plans, right? Davis did this little thing for his school. He already wants to be a policeman and a firefighter and... uh, so at the thing, some kid said he wanted to be a dinosaur, and I was like, that's going to be Davis. He's going to say he wants to be a dinosaur when it's his turn. He didn't, thank goodness, but then he does want to be a dinosaur. We found out later. But uh, you know, he's got all these ambitions, even as a five-year-old kid. And the older you get, you start making ambitions. When you get in high school, you're told to, what, like, what do you want to be? You can be anything you want to be. What do you want to be when you grow up? Start making plans. Start making good grades so you can get to a good college and you get a good job and make all these ambitions for your life. And we've all done that. We all have ambitions for our life. But Paul says, no, lay down those ambitions for the interests of others. Don't seek your own will. Don't seek what you want for your life. Seek to live your life for other people. I heard this story there's a guy preaching. I listened to a lot of sermons during the week, and this guy was preaching, and he was telling this story about how he was in seminary, and while he was in seminary, he needed a job. So he found this job working for Walmart, and his job was to uh, be put in this room. It was a really like dark room. There's a little light box in the middle of the room, and he was supposed to look at samples of colors and organize things in shades from the lightest of you know, a green color to the darkest of a green color. This was this dude's job. Like, I can't imagine how miserable that would be. So he does this all day, every day. He sits in a dark room by himself and looks at colors. He said he could go to Walmart right now and look at this color in, on, on some shirt and be like, that's some pink. He can name the pink color just off the top of his head, which is really weird. But that was his thing. 
And so he did this all day, every day. And he's talked about how he hated this job. Hated it. He's a missionary. Like, he's a people person. He wants to be around people. And he's stuck in this room by himself all day with, like, one lunch break where he goes into this break room. And he was getting depressed. So he started kind of isolating from people. And he'd sit in the corner and just look at a magazine. So literally all day long, he's isolating himself. He's looking at these colors. And that's his job. And he talked about how he just complained and moaned and just hated his life. He started getting depressed. And he didn't, he just was about to quit. And, and then his wife challenged him a little bit and was like, what if you took this opportunity to serve your coworkers? They probably hate their job too. This is this moment where he's like, I'm in seminary, supposed to be like all about preaching the gospel and living for God and how I am in this circumstance and all I can think about is myself and my inconveniences. So he starts making brownies for people. It was his first little thing. He starts making brownies for people, and that opened up conversations, and he started having conversations with, in the break room instead of reading his magazine. And a year later, he leaves, and he starts getting all these letters from his coworkers about how they encouraged him and how he encouraged them and, and helped them through all the things they were going through in their lives and how much of a blessing he was. And, and it was this wake-up call that even in the midst of things that we hate, we can still find joy if we're living for the glory of God. We can easily get wrapped up in ourselves. And it can happen in a split second, right? You can even be like, I'm going to live this day for the glory of God. You walk outside and a bird has pooped all over your truck. And you're like, are you kidding me? And immediately it's gone. My first mission trip uh, was in 2008. I got to go to Kenya. It was literally there, the purpose was to focus on others for two weeks, right? That's what you, when you go on a mission trip, you know, like you're going there to serve other people. I get there and while I'm there, there's a day where Becca was pregnant with Carter and the very first ultrasound happened while I was on that trip. I remember that day, like you're supposed to be there to serve other people and be focused on other people. But all I could think about was how I was missing that ultrasound and how miserable it was and how I should have just stayed home. Should have, I could have been, missed my, first, my son's first ultrasound. I was so disappointed. And then there was this like, moment where it was like, what is wrong with you? You're here literally. You've committed two. You can't commit two weeks. Like, you're literally here to commit two weeks focusing on serving others and putting your own interests aside. Look at Paul. Look at his example. He's, he's in prison facing persecution. He's thinking about the Philippians. He wasn't concerned with his own ambitions. He wasn't concerned with his own interests. He was living for the interests of others. We live in this day and age with this modern age philosophy that is so evident in quotes that you see shared on social media. You see things like, it's your life. Don't let anyone make you feel guilty for living it your way. That's the Burger King motto, by the way. Follow your heart. The most important relationship in your life is with yourself. Successful people never worry about what others are doing. We live in a culture that's absorbed with self. Right? Those are things that like, we see shared all the time. And in a split second, you can hear that and think, that's true. I should care about myself. If I don't care about myself, who's not, who else is going to care about myself? Right? In one split second, you can go from living your life for the glory of God to living your life for the glory of self. It's a dangerous, dangerous 
thing. Paul's saying if you're really saved, be united in your interest of others. Seek the welfare of others before you seek your own. Unity in the church is imperative. I think it's important that we just take a second, pause, and all understand the truth of that. Unity within the church is imperative. It's very, very vital to what we do, that we, that we labor together for the gospel. That's, that's so important. Several years ago, I started feeling really sick and uh, started throwing up and I had this horrible pain in my stomach and I was like, I'm dying, this is it, this is how I go. And uh, like a typical man, I refused to go to the doctor and just laid there whining and crying about it. And uh, finally, Becca was like, look, I don't have enough empathy to care about you anymore. And so you're going to have to make a decision, either suck it up or go to the doctor. She's such a loving wife. Um, so I went to the doctor, and my appendix was rupturing. And, uh, and so they went in and cut it out, and um, they had to put in a drain and all that. I was in the hospital for a few days. And... You, you, you look and see what an appendix is. That's so, such a little organ. It's like this little bitty thing like the size of your pinky. And that one stupid little organ was causing my whole body to fail. Right? I had a good heart. I had a good brain, I think. Um, I'm otherwise very healthy. But this one stupid little organ was causing all kinds of issues in my body. One unresolved conflict can destroy the effectiveness of this body. One unresolved conflict can ruin everything that we're trying to accomplish. Truth is, conflict is unavoidable. There's going to be conflict. There's been drama and conflict in this church probably this week. That's going to happen. It's how we handle that drama and conflict that can change everything. How we deal with the conflict can change everything. Because we know Jesus, because we're led by the Spirit, because we're for and passionate about the lost, we can and should be united. We should be. It should be part of our uh, our. Uh, identity as a body of people, that, that as a, the body of Christ, we should work together and labor for this gospel. We let go of the little stuff and labor to resolve the big stuff. Why? Because we're humble enough to realize it's not about you. Do you get that? Again, that's one of those things that just one little thing could flip that truth in your mind. Where you know deep down, like, it shouldn't be about me. But then one little thing happens and you're like, it's about me. Right? Your feelings get hurt. And immediately you start living in self-pity and it's all about you. It's important that we always remember it's not about you. That what we do here is not about you. We don't care if you like the music. We don't care if you like the sermon. We don't care if you like the carpet. We don't care if you like the pews. We don't care if the air conditioner is comfortable for you because here's the reality. This is not about you. You didn't show up today to worship you. 
You showed up today to worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is about him. And if we can keep that focused in all of the little things that we typically get irritated about, they don't matter. We don't take things so personally. We don't wear our feelings on our shoulders when things aren't about us. Your feelings won't get hurt near as much if you could just live in that truth. This life is not about you. It's about the glory of God. And when we can all live in that reality, we can live in unity. So that's the challenge this morning. Get out of yourself and start focusing on others. Stop worrying about your own interests. Stop worrying about your own desires. Stop worrying about all the things that people have said or done to you. Let all that go and focus on what really matters. Would you stand with your head bowed and your eyes closed? So what's the response this morning? What's the takeaway? First of all, some of you in here, you may legitimately have some conflict that you need to deal with. Right? There may be some some conflict with people within this church that you need to right now go find that person and, and resolve the conflict. Deal with it. We talked last week about the importance of striving and making every effort to live in unity. It's going to require work. It requires a little bit of conflict. A lot of us like to run from conflict but we can't do that. We have to resolve it and deal with it. And so this morning, you may need to resolve some conflict. You may need to check your heart and acknowledge it isn't about you. Maybe the conflict isn't even a big deal. Maybe, you're, maybe you, it's time to recognize that it, it, it wasn't something that was personal. It just is what it is. And living life with people sometimes is difficult. It's time to get out of your feelings and realize it's not about you. That whatever issue you have, you can let that go because we're all united for the same purpose. We're all united for the gospel, for for gospel proclamation, for the glory of God. Or maybe this morning you need to enter into a relationship with Jesus. That was our first if. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, then unity is pointless. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, then Christian living is pointless. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, then what we're doing right now has no value to you. It all starts with knowing and communing with the God of this universe. And we can only do that when we want acknowledge our sin, when we recognize that we are sinners and there is no hope for us apart from Christ. And we believe that Jesus died and he rose again and we put our faith and hope in Christ. We surrender our lives to him and we confess that to him. It's the only way we can come into that relationship with him. I'm not asking you if you've said a prayer. I'm not asking you if you've been baptized. I'm not asking you if you've gone to church your whole life. You can do all of those things and never truly surrender your life to Jesus. The question this morning is, have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you made him the Lord of your life? And the answer to that question is no. And here in a moment, the band's going to sing. As they sing, there's going to be a couple of people standing right here in the front. We would love an opportunity to have a conversation with you about that. If you're saying, look, I can't do the walk down thing, that's okay. Come find us after the service. Shoot us an email during the week, something. Get in touch with us so we can have that conversation with you. There's nothing more important than that. And this morning, if, if you're one of the people that you, you realize, man, I, I struggle not focusing on myself. I recognize that I, I often am wrapped up in myself. If that's you, the answer for you is, is 
repent of that. Maybe you know Jesus, but you also know that you struggle with living for self. You struggle with getting wrapped up in your own thoughts and what you think should be done. And there's always conflict because of it. Maybe it's time for you to come down to these altars and kneel before God and ask him to change your heart, to change your affections. Whatever God's leading you to do this morning as the band sings, I would challenge you to do that. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time together, this wonderful time where we could gather together as your people, united under this banner of the gospel. We can live our lives for, for your glory. That should be the, the focus of our hearts, the focus of our lives. And so God, I pray that Fellowship Church here in Nederland, Texas, that we would be a people united together because the Holy Spirit has changed us and given us this new heart, a new focus. God, that as we live in the joy of our salvation, that it would be evidenced by our unity with one another. Should we pray? Thank you so much for listening. And we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.